Hello, and welcome to The Quantum Divide. This is the podcast that talks about the literal divide between classical IT and quantum technology, and the fact that these two domains are, will, and need to become closer together. Quantum networking actually is more futuristic than perhaps the computing element of it, but we're going to try and focus on that domain. But we're bound to experience many different tangents, both in podcast topics and conversation as we go on. Enjoy. Yeah, good afternoon. Yeah, welcome to the Quantum Divide, the fifth episode. Very happy this time to have an interviewee for our first time. So Sam will give you a badge for that, which I hope you'll wear proudly. I will. Yes, it will be the big H. Yes, it it will go on the middle of your head. Yeah. So yeah, we're joined today by Sam Samuel, who's a director of engineering in the AppShift part of Cisco. But I think we'll just start with a quick intro, Sam. If you just want to say hello, introduce yourself. I think the purpose of today is to talk about, we said the state of the art, but I think we need to touch on qubits in QPUs, the different type of technologies that are out there, what you think may be happening in the market, or at least not happening, and what the impact will be on, on networking ultimately. But yeah, why, why don't you kick off? All right. The conundrum I find myself in, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a deep invested, all I've done in my PhD is quantum type stuff. So I'm a newbie to quantum, right? Let's just put that on the table. Right? So I've, had, I've been interested in this lot since forever. And uh, over many years, I've seen it developing and developing, right? So when I finished my PhD, people were just about starting to show that teleportation could occur, right? So that tells you how long I've been looking at this. And we've come a long way since then. My interest in quantum started to be raised again when I saw a bunch of investment going into quantum startup companies. Right, so the companies like Xanadu out there, SciQuantum. SciQuantum, of course, because it came out of University of Bristol. So we're proudly the badge of the UK kind of thing, right? But that's not the point. The real point is that a lot of investment's gone into quantum computing. And I guess over the past couple of programs, you guys have discussed the need for scaling of quantum computing and stuff like that. So probably not going to go back over that old turf. But the one thing that's still not really answered is which kind of cheaper technology is likely to succeed. Right? And I've been polling the industry for a while, just to, you know, two years ago, we looked at a number of quantum companies, quantum computing companies to see where they were. And they, were, they all looked as though they could solve the problem. Right? So yes, I can get a quantum computer made out of whatever the material is. But when we start to network stuff, then I guess there are going to be some natural front runners in technology. Oh, which of those technologies would be natural front runners? I really don't know. And that's, and after two years of looking at it, I've still no clearer to an answer. Right. So that's, I wanted to see if anybody else had a view where anything else is becoming clearer or not. And by the way, this is not to say that anybody right now is going down a wrong technological path because I don't think we can say any of that. But it's like saying, is there a mix of, of technologies there that naturally lends itself towards networking? Or that's not true, towards the scaling of a computer? I don't know, not all technologies are, shall we say, as easy to interface with. Superconducting quantum computers require transduction, and that adds something else in the middle for networking to happen. Adding something else in the middle, very simply, adds more um, chance of loss. Right. And as we're trying to keep the system as clear and pure as possible, then adding anything into the system may upset the Apple car. So it's that sort of thing that's been 
poking my curiosity, I think, over the past 18 months or so. Yeah, it's a good topic because there, are, there is a lot of different technologies out there. And you're right, once you start adding uh, distributed systems in there, then you're bringing more things into the system that could fail, basically. Well, or it would just be difficult to engineer or, or, or have dependencies on each other in terms of well, being ready. Yeah, I, I also get the feeling that we're also relearning networking. So that's the other piece that, that I, I get the a definite feeling of. So simple tasks of, by analogy, we, we don't think twice about dropping a workload into a data center at all, right? And then the, the other day I was just musing over, over what that what would that be if I could just drop a quantum load into a quantum data center overnight? Now, could I do that easily? But with any assurity that it would work? And I, I came back with a resounding answer of no, not at the moment, right? But that's not because it won't be solved. It's just, I think we're a little bit ahead of ourselves. So that sort of made me think, okay, I need to come back maybe two or three levels before really understanding how we can make any of this, these systems robust enough for that kind of operation. And that, that's where my mind's at the moment. No goodness or badness. I think it just is. Maybe I'll be, maybe, maybe Stephen, Stephen will um, give me some good news. I don't know, but uh, I'll leave it at that for now. Stephen, your thoughts? Yeah, I'm more or less on the same page as you. The, the Qubit technologies are changing every day. We don't even know if one of the ones that invented right now are going to be the ones that's going to survive in 10 years. I think they can, maybe someone's going to invent something new and that's going to be the leader. Maybe it depends on the application. So we might have some applications using some Qubit technology, some applications using different te technologies. So it's probably going to be a combination of things that depends on what we're using the Qubits for. But I think the real problem right now is it's really just, okay, firstly is getting a one quantum computer to work and making sure we have an application for quantum computing in the first place, this is a bit tricky because we it's, so far it's been something maybe 10 years or so, and we're still working on that aspect of quantum computing. But of course, having the application that does something meaningful also means that you have to have large scale. So maybe these things go hand in hand, or maybe one comes one before the other. That's a good, it's a good question to ask, I think. Yeah, I think in terms of connectivity, connecting quantum computers, it's still such an early stage. Really, the only things I'm seeing are preliminary lab results, essentially. But building robust technology around distributed quantum computing is still completely wide open, in my opinion. There is an interesting trend that I'm seeing around that, which is when, okay, so from a technology exploitation angle, it's, it's a bit like saying, okay, is there sufficient utility in the technology today that it can generate revenue for someone, right? I'd, I'd love to think that everybody's investing into quantum computing because they just feel it's the right thing to do, as opposed to people investing in quantum computing because they see money in it, right? And unfortunately, I think it's the, the second one that we have to prove. I think it starts with the people who, who think it's oh, the right it, thing yeah, to do. It, but, but when it gets to us shallow-minded folks, it's all about making money, right, at the end of the day. But it's more, it's more right now what I'm seeing. So in light of what Stephen just said, that there's a whole bunch of stuff that is still up in the air is not quite mature. That's mean to say it won't mature, and it's not to say that it'll never mature and get that on the table. But there are a number of companies out there who are advocating for the use of quantum computers, even at the smaller scale that there are, they are right now, and showing benefits in terms of some kinds of problems, optimization problems, and so on and so forth, that are giving improvements over the traditional classical approach to doing the same sort of computation. And these companies are showing improvement over the current system. 
right? So that's a good sign. So that means that yes, if we can get to a, a scalable system, then you can tack, tackle tougher problems. But the point is, at least from from their angle, is that even at the stage of the state that that quantum computers are today, in terms of their own the size and capabilities, they're still producing useful output. It might be very specialized and niche, but they're still producing useful output. I'm hoping that because they are producing useful output, everybody will start to agree, yes, we need to scale them, and therefore there's more effort put into the networking side of it to get that scaling problem done, right? But then that still comes back to the point of which qubit technology is it likely to be? And I have a hunch there's probably a mix of qubit technologies that are mutually exclusive, and there's a mix of qubit technologies that are likely mutually inclusive, but that they are easier to work with and scale from a manufacturing point of view, right? And again, I have no idea which they are just yet, but I have a feeling that the manufacturability of something will influence that a great deal. So here's a question on that. And we were thinking at the beginning of this call around the dependency of the qubit technology, which is successful and the development of the networking technology after that to support it. Is there actually a, the, the way, the way the networking works or is likely to work is using photons. But that's agnostic of what the actual computer itself is using, apart from the fact there needs to be the transduction that you mentioned. So just step back for a second, because it depends on the materials that you're using. Over shorter distances, you're less constrained, right? So it's useful to, to at this stage, I think, in where the technology is at, it's useful to constrain the distance that you're actually operating over. In full disclosure, misguidedly, when I first started looking at this, I thought, wow, oh, it'll be a few years, a couple of years, oh, 18 months before we're throwing over large and vast distances uh, the same way we throw optical networks today. And it's, that's not the case. We're, we're bringing it back to something which is much more constricted. And that clearly, in my mind at least, that puts it, you're looking for a quantum data center. Now, what do I mean by that? A row of quantum compute inside a data center where the distances involved are at most hundreds of meters. And it's useful to view it that way because there are certain other technologies on the edge of that, um, such as hollow fiber, that could actually help a great deal in trying to get the quantum, the networking part of it to work. So there's that part of it. I think that's a useful thing to look at because you still have to solve some of the major problems for networking anyway, even in a constrained distance type environment. So that's good. The other thing is that it brings out, or rather it amplifies the kind of compute architecture that will likely drive the network anyway. And from that, you're going to get answers one way or another, right? So what do I mean by that? That, that we're still trying to understand which of the two compute architectures that are dominant at the moment, whether it's gate-based or whether it's measurement-based computing, impacts the way the network is designed. Right. And, and there might be benefits to in either or all of those. So, so that's something else that I think is like a little bit just around the corner. And I see plenty of activity out there in one or other of those camps. The, 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 the newer startups I'm seeing are very much measurement-based or some derivation of them. So I, like I say, I know, I'm not quite sure how, how that will materialize, but the way the computing is architected will definitely impact the way the networking is architected and managed. Yeah, and at the beginning, we were talking about connecting QPUs rather than talking about connecting computers. And certainly the, 
Oh. IBM is the, the leader when it comes to investment in the computing size. The roadmap shows systems that are going to have network QPUs, but you're right, that is within a closed environment yeah. and therefore has, yeah, potentially the option to use other technologies. You mentioned hollow fiber. That's super interesting. Could you summarize that? Could you just talk about that briefly? Okay. It's... So there, if we wish to get the loss in the fiber down even further, hollow fibers appear to give a means of doing that. If in a system, the communication aspect of it really does need not to have any photon loss in it, then you really need to have a system which can give you that. And so hollow fiber would be something which would be monumentally expensive to, to redistribute over an entire country. But to do inside a data center over a specific rack or row would be not so as expensive. Okay, so, so that stops some of the scattering of photons it, and would improve the error rate because sending qubits over a fiber is notoriously difficult and error yeah. rates are very high. Yeah, but again, to send any information, you're not sending information over the network, technically, if, you're, if you've got dis dispersed distributed systems and you're teleporting them, then you, your real problem is one of entanglement generation. Can I maintain and sustain a sufficient entanglement generation rate such that the, the, the application that is needing to communicate sees no interruption in, in its computation? So there's two things that we're trying to, there's two things that I think are trying to be solved. So back to this work, workload nightmare that I had. So I have a workload, I put it into the data center, the workload has got to be distributed into that data center, right? Because no one QPU can take the load, can take the actual application itself. In distributing it around the system, then there's lots of considerations that need to happen, right? Breaking the application or subjecting the application to dispersal, I don't think is a trivial task either, right? So if, if we look at data centers today, the workloads are continually shifting because you're trying to optimize the amount of amount of money that a compute platform can raise revenue on, right? By analogy, then that means that a, a quantum data center will be doing the same sort of thing. It's continually, continually shifting its loads around amongst the available qubits to optimize how many quantum loads it can take on, right? And I don't think that today, at least, that looks like an immensely difficult problem to to solve. And the network plays a great deal in that, right? So it's, it, I think the two are joined at the hip, but I don't think the problems are without solution. I'm sure they are, but at the moment, it's like, I'm not seeing any clear winner in that. Sure. And I hope your nightmares subsided a little bit to be having bad nightmares this early on. I hope you're not losing sleep. <laughs> no, it, it's not a question of losing. It's a question of, I'm sure Stephen has the same same view of things is like you, you you look at something you think oh oh somebody solved that as part of it and you think oh great things have moved on and then you look at it hang on a minute and look at the, the complete list of things that i need to solve and because i've solved that piece of it something else is added to the end of the list right so the list is not getting shorter it's equally as long if not an increasing it's never ending yeah 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 at this stage but there's that to be unexpected no no not really because it's still a very useful technology from from this point of view at least right so a little bit uncomfortable using the word workload because of the, the connotations of what it is in the classical sense. And the oh. fact that um, quantum computing is more about laying a circuit onto the, we're at a very it, early stage of- Yeah, but it is, uh, yeah. Algorithms but, that are put into the systems, right? 
Yeah, but a workload is a connotation of, of a unit of charge, right? I'm going to charge you X amount for this job that you've put into the system. It's a job, yeah. Okay. It's the job, okay. yeah. right? So, and it's the same sort of thing. So for a quantum system, you, you're trying to optimize in two directions. So you're trying to optimize in terms of the execution time that the actual application has, at the same time as minimize, minimize both actually, minimize the amount of time it takes on the system and then minimize the amount of entanglement that the network has to generate to satisfy that application, right? And if you're really paying Tetris in the data center, you could come into all sorts of wonder, weird and wonderful solutions at the end of the day. Right now, I don't think we're anywhere near ready for that, but for sure, I'm starting to see people think along those lines, which I think is great, right? Because that's just bringing more reality into what we do. Right? And Steve, we were talking about this previously, right? Quantum entanglement distribution as being one of the main, call it requirements, to build any of this technology on top is reliable distribution of quantum entanglement in volume. Yeah. I think especially in distributed computing, it needs a lot of it. So you have to make sure that the, the software distributing the algorithms has that as an optimization factor. Mm. Yeah. So it's, it's for me, it's really the two-sided problem. Is the engineering side is so difficult and the software side is so difficult as well. But... That's not to say it's not going to happen. I'm completely on board with Sam. It's hard. It's not there yet, but it's not impossible. And it's something we have to do eventually, I think. But, but so here's the, here's the other conundrum that I'm, I don't think it's a conundrum. It's just, I guess it's a particular view that I have. Right now, as I look across the entirety of the ecosystem, I see the need for more collaboration rather than less collaboration. Right? So, that, so there are many startup companies that are actually in need of talking with others because they need to, figure it out genuinely. I don't think one startup can solve all the problems, right? at least of all when it comes to a data center, although some are trying to go down that route. But there are some unanswered things. There's some really stupid things that keep coming into my mind as to whether we need memory or not. Right? So if we're able to have a, a completely a photonic system and you're able to articulate how the application should be served and it can be done all photonically, then maybe the need for memory isn't there. But the moment you start to look at it from a realistic point of view, that not, not everything works according to plan, or there's always some kind of delay in the system, then memory comes in. And memory is another area that I'm just baffled by. I don't know who's going to have the right kind of memory at all. And again, that comes down to the kind of technologies that are there. And there's some really, what I would call, wonderful ideas that are coming out in, in how memory can be instantiated. Some are just basically... I keep the photon pinging between two mirrors until I need it. But even then, at some point, that that will decohere, right? And there are others that are looking, actually looking at the hollow fiber as a means of constructing a memory. So there's some real brilliant ideas coming out from all sorts of directions. But from a manufacturing point of view, again, you've got the benchmark of saying silicon-based memory is very small. I can make it modular, I can add it into almost anything. And ultimately, I think even for a distributed quantum computer, this tries to take up slack in the system, you get in memory in some way, shape or form, and I don't know what that is again. Like so, all right, we know what memory is, but we don't know which technology is going to be giving us the best performance memory that there is. Steve, any thoughts on that on the memory topic? To me, this whole 
challenge of building the distributed quantum computer is like, it reminds me of, my analogy is it's like building one of these big marble statues, like the David or something, where you have to chisel away each piece, work on the foot, work on the hand, work on the face. And everything is just a block right now. So we're working hard on each component, harder and harder. But it's, yeah. So everything is in the novel stage. You don't know what it's going to look like yet. We're still chiseling. But it's the same It's the same perspective. What memory technology will win? Is it going to be able to connect with quantum computing? Is it just something that you can store and then you need to, I don't know. It's You can't manipulate well in storage, for example. Is it just a buffer? Is what's And if it's just a buffer, then what can we do? So many questions that arise. Just because we have the memory, does it work the way we want it to work? And it's also a big problem. But yeah, I see it from the, it's like tackling a big challenge right now. Everything is open-ended. But I see promise though, definitely. There's so many interesting questions to ask and there's unique solutions too that make make people interested in the topic. People like the challenge, people want to solve these hard problems. The analogy with David is interesting. Even if you've got a really badly chiseled foot and hand and head and everything, if you squint a bit, it can still look like David, right? Perhaps we just need that. It's that first cut that looks like the shape of your figure, right? We don't need everything to be finessed and polished down to a perfect surface yet. I'm not cut. Yeah, memories are really interesting. I can't get my head around how how that's going to happen. Because it's such a difficult task to, to capture the... Ultimately, you need to capture the state of the qubit without observing it, right? Perhaps if you could ex- explain a bit more about what it is the memory needs to do. Is it just one type of function that it needs to provide, or is it are there many different ways of using memory? I, I, there's, 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 a, there's a particularly good question. So typically, in the absence of deep understanding of the way, at least from my point of view, because I don't have that real deep understanding of the way quantum systems really work, at least like this that we're, we're talking about right now, then you tend to draw an analogy back to the classical kind of systems that you have, right? And then there's the memories used in a couple of ways. So one of them is just your ability to IO anything, right? So you're storing something temporarily. And the other one is that I'm moving blocks around internally in order that I can perform operations on them. Now, from my naive point of view, so this is me just looking at it from a networking point of view, I just need something to IO. Right. So if the system is a uh, entanglement-based communication system, then I'm looking to store entanglements at either ends of the communication link such that when required, the information can be teleported across the system. Right. So that's the sort of naive view of looking at it. So I need to store that entanglement somewhere. And if it's a temporary thing, then it's, that sort of lends itself towards what memory would be. That's one kind of memory. The other's What's used internal to a, a quantum computer, again, I can't quite, I can't really put my finger on that because that comes down to the sorts of computational model you might have. So again, in my naive understanding of measurement-based computing, you're tangling a whole bunch of stuff. You're then taking the measurement of it. So at that point, are you reinitializing the entanglement? And if you are waiting for the next set of instructions to arrive, is that memory, right? or are you continually operating on a register and the register itself is memory, right? So think of it as you, you're continually adding pulses to a block of something and that block happens to be memory because that's what, that's where the computation is held, right? And so these are all very naive remarks that I'm making, but they're all, you know, 
they all trickle down back to the central point, which is depending on the computational model, I think depends on how you structure the network around it to support it. Yeah, that's fascinating. Steve? Yeah, from my perspective, it's about, okay, the memory, what is its function is, like Sam said, it's about storing something while you're waiting for something else to happen so you can take it out of memory and then continue to operate. So I think there's different aspects of memories well that we could think about is, for example, we have our computers, our laptops have RAM and they have a persistent storage. And that's just one computer. So thinking about the algorithms that we have to run on quantum computers, could even think about memories within the quantum computer that potentially don't do everything. They act as just a long-term storage that we don't need access to the qubits immediately. So we put them away for a while, bring them back. But there's also those like network aspect memories where those could be op operating in a different way. Those might need transduction between solid state and photonics, where the other ones I was mentioning could potentially not need transduction. So there's different ways to think about memory from my perspective. But I guess when we're talking about networks, then there's that one perspective where you need to take a photon, bring it to the solid state, or hold the photon, which is usually yeah. harder, and then bring the photon back out. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think, Stephen, I think I prefer your view of it because it's more, say, in this hand-wavy way, it's more precise than mine because I'm looking at it from a naive point of view. But if I look at it holistically, in, in a sense, the networking needs to know the capabilities of the quantum computer that it's trying to network. In that sense, you, you, you really do need to understand, or we need to understand, I think, what we expect from that computational block in terms of what's internal memory is and what and how it interfaces things. Because it, it, I have a sneaky suspicion that if we are going for a, a, a heterogeneous network of the future, a quantum network of the future, um, then you're looking to run the network within the lowest common denominator of coherence time that is available to you, right? And right now, we don't think along those lines. We do any kind of computing. It's, oh, yeah, just run it in the interfaces and it all works. But in this kind of environment, I think we probably do need to think about that, at least this stage, because until some, somebody of, of, of Stephen's usefulness comes up with the answer, to just after I've retired or something, right? And then, yeah, the problem goes away. But I think in the meantime, we are we are needing to look at the system like that, right? Yeah, okay. there's no well, abstraction. Yeah, there's no, no demarcation I, I, between different functions no, of the grids. No, not yet, but I think that'll come. I know Stephen and I have had offline conversations on this. Good grief, maybe about a year ago, around standardization. I think that's where those conversations are likely to appear. So, so in, in other words, Dan, as we see, or as I hope to see, uh, that some technologies start to really progress in terms of how we can engineer a real system at scale, right? So I think we can engineer any system, by the way. It's the at scale part of it is the critical caveat to all of this, that you'll start to see more emphasis on the standardization as well, because you're trying to make sure that interfacing works out easily in the end. Yeah, we've spoken a lot about teleportation. Maybe we could just talk about that for a minute, as it seems like that's the kind of default requirement that you've that you're thinking about at this point in time, in, in how the different QPUs or computers will be talking to each other using that entanglement um, on the network. So it's, there's also the the idea of sending flying qubits across the network and capturing them, and then tra using transduction somehow. 
Do you reckon there's going to be multiple ways that so, the network's going to work depending on the application? I, I think at the moment, we, we gravitate towards the thing that we think we can get to work the most, right? So right now, I think the discussions are around teleportation because it's, I think it's probably more tractable for the moment. Now, is that the final solution? I don't know yet, right? To do the other requires us to have a great deal of confidence in our ability to encode qubits. I would say, and then not lose or not suffer a 3 dB loss anywhere in the system. Lose less. Yeah. Right? So, you, so, you, so you can recover it. So I, I, I'm pretty sure, and I, I know, I think Stephen and I have spoken to many very clever people in this field, that the quantum error correction like, can really help in almost all aspects of quantum networking and quantum computing. But getting down to tractable solutions approach, I think, is again another another hurdle. Right? I'm not sure whether it's David's hand, foot, shoulder, arm, or head, but it's one of those blocks. Right? It's an appendage. Yeah, it's an appendage. Let's make sure it's not a sore one. Right? So it's one of those. But yeah, maybe Stephen, you've seen reports of this in the learned journals better than I have. But I haven't seen applications, as in experimental applications of large quantum error correction applied to something yet. I know that theoretically they've shown it, but I haven't seen anything, anybody doing it. Yeah, I think from, from what I've seen, error correction has been done very recently in a quantum computer setting, but error correction in communication, I haven't seen. No. Yet. Mm -hmm. right. So that... It, but again, on the flip side of it, if we constrain the distance, I'm hoping that we'll see that mm -hmm. realized. Which, which comes to the guidance that you know that that I think we want to give ourselves, which is you know, don't apply overkill to the constraints. It's okay to make sure that the technology is is it's in its infancy still. It will be for quite a while. So just make sure we give it a nice playpen to work in, so we don't make it cross the main road in the first day. That would be a bad idea. Something along those lines. You've got a lead. So I was reading this paper the other day. It came out of a university in the Netherlands about the link layer protocol for quantum networks. Obviously, this is all purely theoretical stuff. I'll put it in the, I'll put the link in the show notes if anybody wants to read it. But what do you think about the, I'm going to just describe how they've looked at classical networking layers and compared them to how a quantum network could build, um, uh, link state, if you like, or it's state across a network using the same kind of concept. So what they do is at the physical layer, um, if you think about the layers in the OSI model, right, the physical layer, uh, they, they call it attempting entanglement generation. So this is where you're at the physical layer, you're sending lots and lots of photons and you've got whatever process it is to capture the entanglement and store it ready for use. And then the link layer, they call it robust entanglement generation, where um, there's an additional layer of control, which ensures that the entanglement is usable, controllable, and, and ready for, for the next layer. And then for the network layer, they talk about long distance entanglement, which I guess is the analogy to uh, layer three networking going across the network. It's yeah. maybe more effective and would need re quantum repeaters in the way or something to make a longer connection. <laughs> quantum repeaters. Oh. And, and then at the high level, they call for, for the transport layer, 
qubit transmission. So that's when you're actually then using the entanglement and all of the network, whatever it looks like. It's, so then, it's, yeah, and the, I, I guess this is one of the QTech papers. It is QTech. Yeah. Sometimes I get the feeling that the reason we layer things is because we humans are feeble. Right. We have to be able to compartmentalize stuff in order to understand anything, right? So we, we give it layers and they help us, give us the structure and so on and so forth. So the interesting thing with the layer, as, as you described it, as you go upwards through the layers, then you're getting further and further apart, notionally, right? So we can do maybe a short link, but if you want to go over many links, we need to have a repeat of them. So if we look at the way we look at network layers today, it's okay, you don't go all the way up to the top layer, you're actually repeating in maybe layer one, layer two, right? That kind of thing. All right. And because entanglement is not your typical network, it's not packet networking as we see today, right? Because you, 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 when you network something when you, over any kind of distance, there's a path that you take and the path has a number of hops and stuff like that. And eventually the information when it's transferred still takes a number of hops, right? So, but in entanglement-based network, you, you're breaking the rules a little bit because you're making everything adjacent. So if the two endpoints are, are adjacent, then there is, you know, technically speaking, there isn't the network that you, it doesn't materialize in the middle anymore. It plays no part in the transmission, right? So then that means the way we manage networks across a, a, a large area network is going to be very different from the way we manage networks today, right? Yeah, you won't be counting packets that are going across no. the network. You, all, no. all you need is to ensure there's enough entanglement yes, so that the, yeah. the teleportation can take place. Yeah, but that but the interesting thing here is this, and this is, and then we're going to go off into the tall grass a little bit, right? And all I've got That's is the right. same. That's all we're here. Yeah. Yeah. Get your strimmer, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah strimmer. Find the ball in the, in the tall grass. So we're in the, into the tall grass. So here's the, here's the issue that I think we have. Right? It's right that people conjecture that we're going to have a quantum internet. Right? I think that's absolutely true. But when you start to pick away at the issues that are around quantum computation and quantum networking, you quickly come to the realization that actually quantum computing is a kind of high-performance computing or will be a kind of high-performance computing. It's not going to do general stuff, right? It'll do very specific things, or at least for a good while, right? which, is, which then calls into question, why would you be doing anything over a line, longer distance? So we do all of our high-performance computing in data centers today, right? and that's accessing it so you can do over a classical network and the rest of the good stuff that goes with it. But to say that we would be having quantum networking over increasingly longer distances, I think is that's that's that requires a lot more thought before we head in that direction. I think so. It's a bit like saying I'm going to run a, a an application uh, where you are down today somewhere, I guess towards the south coast, and here I am near Cheltenham, and um, I'm going to suddenly need to have my quantum algorithm run on your machine, right? And I'm going. With all the problems of making sure that works, and it's just you're asking for trouble, right? So I don't think that's naturally the way to go. But I don't have a good alternative for you. But that's in the security space. That's going to be more applicable. Yeah, in the, in the security space, that's true. But then, if you, if you're teleporting, it's a different security paradigm that you have, right? It's just a very different. You're not sending information over the network anymore. You're teleporting information, right? So. It's, it's, it's a very different paradigm. I think there's mileage in that. Um, but again, you've got to make it all reliable and all that kind of good stuff, right? So if, so 
let's see if I can drag ourselves out the tall, tall grass. If the quantum computing is about doing computations that you can either improve the result of over a classical system or do computations that you can't classically do, then you're really looking at mathematical co-processing kind of things. And that's a specialized form of computing that is will be, will be happening in a single space more than likely. A data center with a row in it is more likely to be the result, I think. Right? And going over a distance, I, I think we're a long way from that. But that doesn't mean you're saying we shouldn't aim for it. Absolutely. But I think you know, there, there are plenty of problems on the list to solve before we get to those. And then to, to your point on the oh, yeah. quantum repeater, okay, the quantum repeater is a small computer. But can you make them small and self-contained enough that you can do the relay? Yeah, yeah I think you can. But it's back to the, the first question of, okay, which are the gate technologies that you think will dominate and can we make a repeater out of them? That's cost effective. Don't forget the cost bit. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we did one of our previous calls talking about uh, cloud and the availability of cloud services, uh, quantum cloud services to lay form of computation remotely. Mm-hmm. I think that is going to remain as the main method for yeah. utilizing these types of services. Because if you have a problem that is classically difficult or it takes many months, years to, to perform the computation and a quantum algorithm will be able to um, improve that for you, then it's not too difficult. In fact, a lot of the software elements are there already to be able to just do that remotely and get the results back. Mm. There are many companies out there offering this already. But, um, but, but Dan, here's the thing. This is me coming from an old guy, right? So here's the thing. We're still... In, in that very sentence, we're still judging quantum computing classically and quantum networking classically, right? We're coming at it from, we view networks like this, and therefore we tend to try, we tend to layer it so we have the analogy between this network and the current network and so on, right? Where, whereas in, in reality, it will probably go off in a totally different direction and give you unexpected results once it starts to get used, right? And I'm being pretty honest with you, my head is in not, not in that space, right? I, I, don't, I don't think it'll be my generation which looks at that. It'll be the following, it'll be Stephen's generation which looks at that. Right? And this is why we're doing communication at a distance using quantum stuff, because of whatever, right? Yeah, I was just building on the uh, high-performance compute topic. Ultimately, that's an extension. What's out there in our area is going to be developed continually developed over the next few years is utilizing quantum computers at a distance and therefore extending your ability to use an equivalent niche high performance computer without needing to invest in yourself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I can see there's, there would be an established market for this. So, so back in, in my youth, um, there was an awful lot of uh, noise when I first did my PhD around chaos theory and the ability to use that in financial markets to predict things and so on, automated trading and all this kind of nonsense. And there was, but then everybody did it. So there was no longer an advantage. So everything just moves up one. Right? And I, I got a sneaky suspicion that, that quantum computing will be the same sort of thing, that the financial markets will see a need for it because they, they can see some benefit out of it. And that would be great because that pulls through the industry. And then you're going to have the mainstream use occurring elsewhere or something like that. Right, so it will be a first mover advantage for somebody, 
it'll drive uh, the commercial need for it. And in driving the commercial need for it, other commercial things will be found that you couldn't do. And that becomes interesting at that point. But like, again, uh, is that going to happen in the next two or three years? I don't think so. I think it's going to be happening for uh, maybe charitably 10 years away, something like that. Right. I've done my best to not ask people to look into a crystal ball on, on yeah. in these podcasts because I but think there's some I, I would, yeah, silly I would, realms of play. But I, I, w- I wouldn't trust my view. I trust Stephen's view more than mine. I think in this because he's going to be around longer. Yeah, let's see. The timeline from my perspective is it's my destiny. It'll exceed both our lifetimes <laughs> until it gets to this stage where it's an everyday tool for everybody, or at least scientists or academics or something, that we can reliably go to quantum computing and answer questions. Maybe that's, maybe, okay, maybe not that long, but I think 10 years is a reasonable number to say, like, that's when we'll start making an impact on oh. academic research, maybe another 10 years before it's affecting the industry or the economy and the corporate so world. Based on, we're getting to the end, but I just thinking about what's happening in the macro environment where it's quantum, so moving away from the technology for a minute here, the fact that you're, we're talking about that kind of length of time and the fact that there's a lot of investment going in, there's been a, a real spike in it recently. Any thoughts on whether you think there'll be a bubble coming and then maybe a, oh, Jesus. Um, a when, drought? Do they still call it a drought? Yeah, when, when has anybody <laughs> not said no to a bubble, right? It's, oh, come on, guys, we can hype anything in this world. And why would this be any different? Yeah, I think a quantum bubble is a different color. I think that's still- no, it's maybe there or maybe not. It depends. Right? It's so, a super bubble. A super bubble. <laughs> so, super posed bubble, at least. So, you're asking about human nature, Dan. You're not asking about quantum. No, it's worse than that. I said I wasn't going to ask predictions, yeah. and I've just asked you to make a prediction. Yeah, so, no, so about a bubble of all things, right? So, it's impossible to say. We're I, definitely I, seeing I, some growth. But I can give you an answer. I can give you my preferred answer, which is I sincerely hope there's not a bubble. Because a, a bubble can really get in the way of actually coming to a tractable commercial solution, right? Um, and you want to remove the carpetbagger effect, right? So think of Bitcoin, right? That was a huge bubble. And that did Web3 a huge disservice, right? Blockchains and all that technology is a useful technology. But it got completely distorted by the need for Bitcoins or some kind of electrical, electronic financial instrument that can be based on a different kind of currency, right? But the underlying technology that's being used is still useful, right? But it got completely mugged on the way to the forum, right? And I really want to avoid the same thing with, with quantum. I think quantum is going to have a, an immense impact on us, maybe not in my generation so much, but um, maybe in Stephens, I think it probably will, and it will. And if we, if it fulfills its aspirational hopes of being able to do more intense computations that actually conclude, right? So they complete in polynomial time, then I think that's going to be a good thing for humanity, right? So we've got some tough problems coming up. I think will be case, but putting hype in the middle of it and bubbles is just the wrong thing. Oh yeah. 
It'll, it seems to be an nature, though, doesn't it? This is turning into a philosophical conversation. Right? It, it is. Not the human race, but... <laughs> it, yeah, it is turning into a philosophical, philosophical conversation. But from a researcher point of view, you want to get to an honest answer. And I think hype just doesn't give you that opportunity to get to an honest answer. And, and it's the, the fact that the, the academic successes can be blown up out of all proportion sometimes. Not That doesn't undermine any of the academic successes in any way whatsoever. It's just that sometimes the view in the public eye is distorted, as you said. Yeah. So I think that's what needs to be avoided. If that's the case, then there's no chance of a bubble. But well, certainly in terms of expectation. Yeah, I would make one comment. I think the reason there is so much hype is because there is a lot of potential. Yeah. But it's hard to access that potential. Timelines don't exist for hype. <laughs> hyping up things. It's just now or never. But in general, I think... There's a good reason why this hype is because there is a lot of potential. But one thing I'm noticing, though, at least recently, is the hype is becoming more realistic. So maybe five years ago, the hype was different than it is now. Mm. And yeah, and I think that's a good sign. That's People are coming yeah. closer to the planet, bringing the clouds a little closer to Earth. Great. Okay, well, I think that's it for this pod. Thank you very much, Sam. It's been really good to chat with you. We might even invite you back if you're lucky. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> That's that's boring my confidence. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. All right. We we'll have a think about it. No, honestly, it's a great conversation. And yeah. Bye for now. Right. See you next time. Thanks. Thank All you, right, Steve. Thanks. I'd like to take this moment to thank you for listening to the podcast. Quantum networking is such a broad domain, especially considering the breadth of quantum physics and quantum computing, all as an undercurrent, easily to get sucked into. So much is still in the research realm, uh, which can make it really tough for a curious IT guy to know where to start. So hit subscribe or follow me on your podcast platform. And I'll do my best to bring you more prevalent topics in the world of quantum networking. Spread the word. It would really help us out.